Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for the opportunity that we now have to look into your word. We ask for your guidance as we study. We ask for your help in uh, helping us to understand. And Lord, especially we ask that you would help us to learn and to apply it as well. We ask these things, Lord, in your name. Amen. Please be seated. We'll be in John 1, 1 through 18. Now, we're starting today a series in the book of Mark, so naturally we're going to the book of John, right? <clears throat> and really what I want to do with the book of Mark, since Mark jumps right into ministry, is I want to give a couple this week and next that are kind of the background, and then we'll go right into Mark. So in my own notes, this series is called Mark Plus. So anywhere we see something from the other Gospels, we'll kind of bring that in as well. Um, <clears throat> Anytime you go to live and work in a country that is not your own, uh, it, you have to go through a process of cross-cultural learning in the sense that you have to learn the language, you need to learn the customs, and, and a whole bunch of other things if you want to be able to integrate in some way into that culture or learn to be able to live in that culture. Um, and cross-cultural communication leads to all kinds of fun things, actually. Uh, for those of us that go or for those that you've seen go, uh, we had some friends in Bolivia who, um, they had gone to the, st- to the market and they bought this big old bowl and they thought, oh, that would be good, a big plastic bowl that would be really good for serving, you know, any kind of food in at a meal. And then they invited some friends over and uh, the friends came over to eat and uh, they, they made a couple of cultural mistakes. Uh, we've done this, Carol and I did this too, and that is you don't serve a, a meal family style with everything on the table where you pass around. And the reason for that is in most Bolivian homes, at least in that day, they in the kitchen knew how much food there was. And so they would bring the plates out already loaded and give them to you. And to have it all out in the middle of the table, they had no idea how much do I take, what do I do? And so that was one thing that we, uh, as time went on, we learned how to handle that. And, and so they did that. And the other thing that they did was the bowl that they had chosen, they thought was so cool. It had a little handle on the side. And that bowl, they started passing the food around in it, and none of the Bolivians would take it. And finally, he said, what's going on? They said, well, you know what that bowl's for, don't you? And they, they're from up here. They didn't have a clue. It's what we used to call a chamber pot, so that if you didn't want to go out to the outhouse in the middle of the night, you just kept that under your bed and, you know, whatever. So um, they, uh, they came to grips with the fact that you don't serve food in that kind of a pot. <clears throat> That's cross-culture communication at its best. <laughs> Anyway, one of the things I love about the first five verses of the book of John is that we begin to see that God is making this transition from being fully, totally, completely God to being human on some level. He becomes like us. And that's a huge gap to bridge. And so as we look at the book of, as we look at John in the first few verses, be thinking, that's kind of what I want us to remember. Okay, Jesus Christ came, Mark tells us about his life. Well, John's telling us about what happened before he came and a few things besides that. So let's jump right into verse one of chapter one. And, and in these first five verses, you get this kind of a big picture before the incarnation kind of look at, at heaven and at Christ and the purposes for which he came. So verse one, in the beginning was the word, And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So in the beginning, the start of all things, Genesis 1-1, that whole thing. And the interesting thing in this is that for those of us who believe the Bible is true and without error, it's telling us that before anything came into existence, period, God already existed. 
God the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit already existed. And so in the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word is a reference to Jesus Christ. And why does he use the Word as the, as the, as the title for, for Christ? And part of this, I believe, is the whole idea that, that the Word was coming to communicate there's that sense of God wants to communicate one-on-one, face-to-face, if you will, with his creation, with, his, with the people he's created. And so God, the Word of God, Jesus Christ, comes and takes on human form and starts this whole process. Um, verse 2, it says, um, <clears throat> so verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And so you've got all of this saying, when creation took place, God brought it about, and the Trinity was at work and alive and doing just fine before anything came into existence in our universe. Then it says, through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. And so if you've ever studied philosophy, and I I enjoyed that, uh, studying that at one time, and one of the questions that's asked is, why is there something rather than nothing? Why is there something rather than nothing? And the answer to that is right here. Through him, all things were made. And it wasn't as if gradually over a process of time, all these things started to come about and, and, and changes took place. No, it's very, very clear. And, and actually, um, astronomers will tell you the same thing. Everything came into existence at one point in time and space. God spoke. And there it was. It was all there. Now, he went on to do other things in creation, and we see that all in Genesis. But the reason that there's something rather than nothing is God. And he spoke it all into existence. What an incredible thing. Um, Don't know if we get to see instant replays in heaven, but if we do, I'd love to see that one. Wouldn't that be amazing? There it is. Anyway, he goes on to say in verse 4, the word made everything, and then in him was life. And the life was the light of men. And so we're starting to mix our our metaphors, if you will, and and he's the word, but he's also the light. So through him, the word, he brought the existence, the universe into existence. And and in him was life, the source of life, and then real life being found only in Christ. And and he says that life shines in the darkness. And that life um, is the light, that life is also the light. Verse 5 tells us about the light. Then he moves on to say, The light shines into the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. And that word understood is translated to most other places as to be overcome or to be extinguished. So the the darkness can't hurt the light is the thought that's there. Um, So the light shines, drives away the darkness. The light invades the darkness, if you will. Um, the darkness has not understood or overcome. Darkness cannot overpower the light. There's two verses I want to just share. Verse 5, yeah, here they are. Um, the darkness has not overcome it. That's from the ESV. And the darkness can never extinguish it. That's from the New Living. So think of Jesus Christ. Think of God as the light. And think of everything else. If it, if it was all in darkness, darkness never wins against the light. You ever been in, in one of those caverns where they shut everything off and you're sitting there thinking, oh my goodness, I can't see my hand, I can't see anything. And all they have to do is turn on one little bitty flashlight and you go, oh, wow, there's light. 
Well, that's, that's what's going on here in a sense. Darkness can't challenge the light. The light always shines into the darkness, drives the darkness away. The darkness never, ever wins. And so verse 5, we have that whole idea of light and darkness. Uh, and John introduces that black and darkness and, and light. And he goes back and forth many times using those things as symbols, good and evil. Uh, darkness representing Satan and, and, and light representing God. And he goes on, <clears throat> just the whole idea that we just kind of think about that a minute. I, it was interesting to me because I, I love the way the New Living said it. The darkness cannot extinguish the light. The light wins. light always wins. Uh, the light, God, invades the darkness. And so Christ coming into the world was the light coming into the darkness of this world. Um, Think about the darkest day in human history, and I would suggest that that is the day that Jesus Christ died on the cross, and he's buried. And, and talk about evil and darkness winning. It didn't last, did it? <laughs> and three days later, boom, here comes Jesus in the light, and I tell you what, stomp the serpent's head. He did that, didn't he? Some people talk about how there are no absolutes, that things are not black and white. And yet you can't read John without coming to grips with the fact that there is light and there is darkness, and that light always overpowers the dark. So <clears throat> in many ways, there, there may be a tiny little group of Christians somewhere, but there is still light in the dark when that happens. And that light can spread uh, very, very much because the Lord is working. So the word, the word is light. The word shines in the darkness. It invades the darkness, and the good news for us is that the light always is victorious. Let's move on to verse 6. <clears throat> and now we're introduced to, to John the Baptist, not John the Apostle here. There came a man who was sent from God, and his name was John. And one of the things we have to remember at this point in Israel's history, this is the first communication from God with the nation of Israel in 400 years. 400 years of silence end with John the Baptist and that whole time frame and him coming. And no wonder the nation went out to see him dressed in rough clothes like he was and, and in many ways preaching messages similar to what Elijah preached. And people are going, oh man, look, God has spoken. And so there's a real excitement in the nation of Israel on the, on the part of many and on some, there, there's also a sense of dread. So there came a man sent from God, his name was John, verse 7 um, he came as, as a witness to testify concerning the light so that through him all men might believe. So this is a great section here when we talk about why did John come? Well, he came as a witness. Well, what does a witness do? A witness testifies. You go before the judge, you raise your hand, I swear to tell the truth, and they ask you questions, and you are testifying. That's the picture that's being used here, that John is there to testify and what is he testifying about? He's testifying about the, the light that is coming. And, and, and what an incredible thing. He's a witness to the truth. And he's proclaiming that truth. And John comes in verse 7. You see it. He comes witnessing the fact about the Messiah is coming. And the reason for that is that all men might believe in the Messiah. John was never about raising up his own followers. He had some. He had disciples. But what did he eventually say? That's the man you need to follow. That's the one you need to, see, to, to go after. 
And many of the, his disciples then went and followed Jesus at that point. Um, but he comes as a witness to testify so all men might believe that the light has come. That's the whole point he's trying to make. And then verse 8, he himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. And so John, makes, you know, John the Apostle makes it clear that John the Baptist was not the Messiah and never claimed to be the Messiah. John the Baptist was one calling in the wilderness, pointing the way to the Messiah himself. And so as we're going through, we see that, you know, he himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. And then the true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. So the true light, um, the, the, the word was the light. The word, the Messiah, was, had come. And, and, and that light gives light to every man. The light of Christ is available anywhere, anytime, and is the answer to all the struggles that we have personally, individually, and as a, and as a world. So the true light that gives light to everyone uh, was coming into the world. Some people see this whole idea here as maybe the idea of general revelation, the sense that there's something that shines and shows us, that, you know, creation, etc. But I think it's more specifically speaking to the fact that Jesus was the light and, and he came. Um, so then we go to verse 10. Um, he was in the world. He, Jesus, was in the world. And though the world was made through him, we saw that in the first five verses, the world did not recognize him. Okay, so he, he comes into the world, he comes, and John proclaims who he is. And of course, you go back on the, on the, when he was born, the angels proclaimed it to the shepherds, and all the stuff we just thought through when we went through Christmas. But he was in the world, and though the world was made through him, they did not understand or recognize who he was. Um, Jesus, the creator, sustainer of all things, and yet he's an unknown to many people. So the word was in, in the world, in the very world that he had created. The world did not recognize him. Why didn't the world recognize him? Well, we're talking about a fallen creation, aren't we? We're talking about the fact that it's at, the, at the garden, the world was cursed. And it's fallen. And so on one level, it's very possible that the creation is, is struggling, creation, if you will, is struggling uh, to recognize the Creator when Satan has it bound and, and everything is in darkness from that perspective. So he came to the world, and the world didn't recognize him, but he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. And, and the whole idea of his own was his own people, the people of Israel, the nation through whom the Messiah was to come, the descendant of David, all of that. Um, and, and he came to them, and in the end, they rejected him. Yes, there were some followers, there were disciples, there were many others, but as a whole, the nation said, no, this man's life needs to end. So the word came home, if you will, and was not wanted. And verse 11 from the New Living Translation puts it this way. Even in his own land and among his own people, he was not accepted. That's a strong indictment, isn't it? That's a strong statement against uh, what happened with the Jewish people when they chose not to follow the Messiah. Now there's a huge contrast between verse 11 and verse 12. Verse 11, he came to that which was his own, his own people, the Jewish people, and, and they didn't receive him. They didn't accept him. They wanted nothing to do with him. They rejected him. And then he goes on to verse 12 and says, Yet to all who received him, 
to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Isn't that awesome? Children, not born, children born not of natural descent, not of human decision or husband's will, but born of God. So verse 12 then tells us, all who receive him, and that's the whole idea of accepting, believing, understanding that Jesus came to die for our sins and believing that for our own self, for our own salvation. Those who receive him, those who believe in his name, and that really is basically the same way as saying to believe in him. When you see something about the, the name, many times it's just a, a, the same title or a title for, for Jesus himself. So those who received him accepted the word, and they believe in his name, that by faith they put their trust in Jesus, and, and they have the right, after they do that, they have the right, the privilege, the opportunity, however way you want to put it, um, they have the right to become children of God. <clears throat> and to become is a choice. We place our faith and trust in Jesus who did this, and he has made promises that he saves us at that point, and, and that everything is taken away. We're forgiven when we place our faith and trust in him. And <clears throat> we become children of God, adopted by God, brought into his family because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. And so I love the fact this, this isn't a normal, natural human thing we're talking about. We're born of God. This is, remember Nicodemus, he said, you know, what, what has to happen? And Jesus said, you need to be born again. And that whole discussion of, well, I can't go back into the womb. It wasn't that. It was the spiritual rebirth of believing in Jesus that totally changes a person. So the response to the word we see in this passage, <clears throat> Jesus is rejected by his own people, and Jesus is received by those who believe. Um, interesting, after 400 years of silence, you've got... John the Baptist comes along and stirs up the people and says, hey, the one that comes after me, he's the Messiah. Some people listen, and Jesus attracts big crowds until he starts teaching things that they weren't all that excited about hearing. And then the crowds went away. He ended up with a much smaller group that was following him. And those who received him put their trust, and they believed in him, that he was the Messiah, the Son of God. We're faced with the same choices today. We can either reject the message of the gospel, because the Lord God does not force anyone to make the decision to receive Christ. Um, God could have done something that way. He could have put a, you know, believe in Jesus or you'll just kind of, you know, get sick and die, but he didn't do that. He says, here's what I'm offering you. At the cost of my son's life, I offer you forgiveness, and I offer you freedom, and I offer you life forever with me. But it wasn't one of those things where take it or leave it, and you get smashed if you don't. Um, so Jesus, uh, God, they allowed people to reject. And then those who receive, those who believe, are the ones who put their trust in him uh, and were saved. And just some implications here. <clears throat> I want to talk a little bit about those who received Jesus Christ and believed in him. Uh, they become children of God. They are born of God. And that's what happens when we receive Christ as Savior, and we put our faith and trust in the fact that he died for a reason. He died in order that we could be forgiven. Um, and when we begin to realize that and we accept that, we realize that we're adopted into God's family, we're given the right or the authority to be his child, we are supernaturally changed by the Spirit of God. We were condemned and on our way to hell, and now we are saved and on our way to heaven, no matter what happens 
when we're saved and we know Christ, then that's our destination. There's some verses that talk very clearly about this that I'd like to just look at very quickly. Uh, John 16 through 18. The first verse, John 16 says, For God so loved the world. Um, Another translation says, For God loved the world in this way. And then goes on to say um, that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Whoever includes everyone, anyone. If anyone wants to accept the gift of salvation, well, it's, it's there. It's to be received. Um, the love of God for all of us is shown in the fact that this is what he did for all of human beings. He died offering himself for them. God's love was displayed really clearly in this. If you, if you want to see love on display, look at Calvary. That's the love of God in a powerful, powerful way. I came across this quote that I think kind of helps a little bit. He came to pay a debt he did not owe. Okay, And the debt was the sins of the world and, and all the, the evil that was going on. Uh, he didn't do any of it, and he didn't, nothing would be better for him in the sense that, that he would gain anything from this. But he came to pay a debt he didn't owe because we owed a debt we could not pay. We, we were... Our sinful nature and and our actions and all of that separated us from God. And Jesus Christ came to live and die and rise again so that we could put our faith and trust in him because he paid our debt, which we could not pay. Verse 17 goes on to say, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. If he was going to condemn the world, he didn't need to send Jesus. Jesus would not have had to come if all that was happening was the final condemnation of the world. God wouldn't have to even be here for that to happen. If he brought it all into existence with a thought, he could take it all away with a thought. But that wasn't the plan. It never was. The plan was that Jesus would come and pay that debt that we couldn't pay. So God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. That was his purpose. That's why he came. Um, everyone is born condemned already, but and condemned to eternal separation from God, but Jesus did not come to put that into effect. He did not come to say, okay, judgment is coming now. That is not what happened. Uh, he came to save the world and save anyone who would turn to him. And verse 18 tells us that. Uh, verse 17, for God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Verse 18 tells us the how and the why. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. And I love to picture it this way. We're all born under condemnation. We are condemned. Just being born, we're already condemned. If nothing changes, we go on to final condemnation after our death. We're all condemned. That's how we're born. That's who we are. That's our sin nature. And, and, and we may think, oh, you know, that, that's just kind of forced upon us. No, we all make those choices. But we're also all born with that nature, that sin nature. And so whoever believes in him is not condemned. And that's the whole message of the cross. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. 
That's, that's the answer. That's the solution. That's why he came. Those who do not believe, those who reject that, are condemned already because they were born under condemnation. All that has to happen now is their death and passing into eternal com- condemnation or the Lord returning and sending people into eternal condemnation who have rejected him. So again, as I think through these verses, I love these verses, and I, and I love them in light of the fact that, that John is telling us, you know, if you receive him, you can, become, you can become a child of God. You have the right to become a child of God. And, and John then in, later tells us these things here. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. And the change is immediate, but it's also lifelong. I just want to, want to spend a minute on that, you know. We get saved, and, <clears throat> and we think, okay, so now there's got to be these big changes. And I have to be honest, when I was, in, uh, I was a kid going to camp, and especially in my teens, I was always jealous of the people that got saved after doing all these terrible things. Um, that's a bad thing to say, perhaps, but that's how I felt, you know. Oh, man, listen to that testimony. That's so cool how God said And all I could say was, yeah, you know what, at five years old, my mom and dad talked to me, and I understood, and I, I prayed and received Christ. And so I was really kind of jealous of those other kind of testimonies. But the reality is God changed me, and he changed them the same way through Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. It's interesting that many times it It's not an instant change. It's an instant change in the sense that we become his, but depending on where we are in life and what we're involved in, it takes time sometimes for the word of God and the spirit of God to work in our lives. Uh, Sometimes I think we are expecting someone who gets saved to automatically be way over here, when the reality is that's called sanctification and that takes time. And depends on where you are here, how long it takes you to head further down the road. And so this, I came across this story and it really struck me. There's a young man who um, <clears throat> had robbed a bank with two other guys. Uh, he was only 19 at the time, and um, they were looking for them, and there was a manhunt going on, and two uh, prisoners were killed in an accident, and they were mis... Um, well, people believed that they were the bank robbers, and so the case was closed. This young man knew that he would never be caught since the case had already been closed and they had nothing to go on. And eventually, uh, he married a woman who was a Christian, and he pretended to be a Christian so he could marry her, and, and he was a Christian whenever she was around, but in his own heart, there was still a whole lot going on. And one day, someone gave him a little booklet, and in that booklet, it says, whosoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That was one of the verses they quoted. And he realized at that point in time that he needed to be saved. That's the only thing that could help him, because he still had all this guilt, and he had other things, even though he was living would look like a really nice uh, life at that time. Well, the Lord's changed him. It took time, but the Lord changed him. He used to be someone who lied basically forever, anything. And that all went away. And eventually the, the Spirit of God confronted him with the fact that this sin was still out there and had to be dealt with. Not that it wasn't forgiven, but that he needed to make restitution. And so he went to the police and he confessed, told them what he had done, and enough time had gone by that uh, you know, the case was basically just dismissed. But then what he felt God was convicting him to do was to pay the bank back for the money, his part of what he had done. And he did. He saved up all that money and he paid them back. Now, why, all, why did all this happen? He was born again, saved, and in the process, God changed him little by little. The more he submitted to God, the more he surrendered his own life to the Anyone who's born again will be changed. Will it be all the same? No. It'll be different. 
because we're all different personalities, all different things that we've done. But when we're saved, if we're truly born again, there is a process of growth, sanctification, becoming more and more like Jesus, and so there's change. And it's interesting because there have been some people that I've worked with in the past many years ago, and I, I you know, prayed with them or they accepted Christ, and I kept thinking, okay, there's going to be some change. Gonna be some... And I didn't see anything until I came back three or four years later, and I went, oh, now I see the change. It's just that I didn't see it because God was doing it. God was working, and it wasn't this massive day, night and day change. <clears throat> so one of the things that I think we just need to challenge you to think that through today, and if you have any questions, I'd be happy to talk with you about that. So one of the proofs that we are genuinely saved and have, been, have received him is the evidence that we, our lives are changing, having a changed life as a result. This last section, verses 14 through 18, says this, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So he came, the word came, and, and he took on humanity. Uh, the incarnation is described in so many ways. Um, uh, he took on all the limitations of humanity, uh, and, and maybe the whole idea that humanity added divinity to it, or that the divine word became human. And, and the minute we start trying to figure out how God could be man at the same time, we come up against something that's hard for us, because we can't understand how that can be. How can the God of the universe and the person of Jesus Christ exist? And, and you know, they write, they've written all kinds of books about that, and, and I love reading some of that kind of thing, but I'm, in the end it comes down to there is an incarnation. Jesus is fully God and fully man. Put those two together. If you can do it, I'd love to hear it, but it's not something that we, humanly speaking, can understand, I don't think, completely and fully one of the things that we look at and say, okay, this is what God said, so I'm going to believe what he said. But he made his dwelling among us, he pitched his tent is the, the thought that's there, took up residence with us, uh, and, and, and John says, we've seen his glory, uh, glory of the one and only, and he came full of grace, and God's inexhaustible goodness, and full of truth, eternal reality, clearly spoken and shown. In verse 15, it says, John testifies concerning him, saying, this is who I, of whom I said, he who comes after me will surpass me because he was before me. So what's John saying? Well, John is saying, hey, listen, this is the guy I was telling you about. This is the guy I was pointing to. And, and, and he has always existed. He was before I ever came into being. He already existed. And so on one level, John is giving this strong testimony. And then he says, from the fullness of his grace... We have all received one blessing after another. And, and, and this fullness is a whole idea of bursting out, bursting forth. In the fullness of his grace, uh, grace offered to the world, we receive one blessing after another. Some people translate that as grace on grace, like waves on the shore. There's a wave of grace. Oh, oh, there's another one, and it just keeps pounding on the shore, the grace of God. That's the kind of image that, that John is using here for us to to think through. Verse 17, for the law was given through Jesus Christ. Uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> the law was given through Moses. Uh, grace and truth came through Christ Jesus. Um, so the law came, and we remember the scene in Genesis 3 where uh, you know, Moses is called, and all the stuff that happened in Israel going to the desert, and then the law and the Ten Commandments are brought down. 
uh, from the mountain, but law and then grace and truth through Jesus. Uh, so Moses brought God's law. Jesus Christ brought grace and truth. Verse 18 then ends with, <clears throat> No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So no one's ever seen God, but Jesus Christ, God, has seen him, and he's the one that has explained him to us or made him known to us. Uh, so Jesus made him known, explained him, if you will, making the invisible God uh, something that we could know and understand. Now just some of the things we've seen in this passage. The Word has always existed. <clears throat> Thanks. Uh, the Word has always existed. He's eternal. The Word was with God. Uh, the Word is unique, one of a kind, one and only. Uh, the Word is Jesus Christ, and the Word is God. <clears throat> now, as I was thinking this through, the, uh, this kind of I came across this statement, and I, re I really like this. There is no way of knowing God apart from the incarnation of Jesus. Uh, in the Old Testament, they had a, a, a form of knowledge, and they had the sacrifices and all that rest, but everything was pointing to Christ. Everything was pointing to the time when the Messiah would come. So there's no way of knowing God apart from the incarnation of Jesus. That's why Jesus came. So the word came, Jesus came full of grace and truth. I had a friend who we used to tell him all the time. He was one of these guys that was brutally honest and on one level refreshing and on the other level kind of, you know, we had to be careful because he was honest sometimes when he needed to kind of back off. And so we would always say, listen, the truth is good, but don't remember, Jesus came with grace and truth. Grace and truth. So, so you know, we'd say, hey, Kurt, don't forget the grace part of this. You understand what you're saying is true, but remember, grace and truth should go together. Um, aren't you glad that Jesus didn't come just with truth? Just truth. He could have said, Mark, you deserve hell. And he would have been right. Grace and truth means that when I come to him, there's nothing there to condemn. I've been forgiven, I'm clean, I'm whole, I'm pure in God's eyes. What an incredible thing. I'm so thankful that Jesus came with both. Grace and truth. Think of it this way. If it was just truth, everything you'd ever said or done or felt could be publicly broadcast, if you will, and you could do nothing about it. But because of Jesus and grace and truth, Nothing is there to publicly broadcast because it's been forgiven. It's gone. It's been taken care of. That's why I love the fact that he came with, with grace and truth. God's truth shows us who we are and what we've done, and God's grace offers forgiveness and help and strength uh, to keep on going after he saves us. Um, Kim Cross is saying, I think it's a good way to end this passage, grace is getting everything for nothing for those who do not deserve anything. I don't deserve what Jesus did for me. Neither did you. It's pure and simple, the grace of God. And I think sometimes when we've been a Christian for many years, we don't remember the awesome nature of the grace of God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only. What do we take away from all this?
we talked about cross-cultural communication a little bit and communicating um, things to people. When we were, uh, many years ago in Bolivia, Karen and I used to communicate by letter to our families back home. And once a week, I would write everybody in the family, same letter, but I would write it and type it and send it. And um, sometimes I'd send something more to our parents. But we would tell them what it was like to be living at 13,000 feet and what it was like when the military tanks came rolling through and there was a coup and, and what it was like to try to walk up to those, some of those houses we visited way at the top of the valley. And, and we would tell those things to them. We would even send pictures or send a cassette with a, kind of a description. And yet it wasn't the same. My parents came down for one month, and in that month, they experienced a military revolution. They experienced all of the things that we talked about, how cold it was in La Paz, and and a whole bunch of other things. And it was like the light bulb went off for them. They said, oh, now we get it. Now we understand. Now we see. And and as I was thinking about that, uh, God, Jesus didn't come so that he would understand us. He came so that we would know he does understand us. I mean, he already knew. He didn't have to come to gain any more knowledge. But in coming and fulfilling all of the things for which he was to come, we could say, there's someone like us, except for sin. He didn't have any of that. And we can see him and, and, and be thankful for the salvation that he offers. Um, that's one reason that the word became flesh, so that you know we would know Jesus and truly understand what it was um, and, and, and the fact that he, he, he knows us, he understands us. This quote came, came across this week. The Word is the face-to-face human expression of all that God has revealed about himself. So I can think about that. Think of Jesus as communication. He came, lived, worked, taught, all of those things. Died and rose and went back into heaven. But the Word was the face-to-face human expression of all that God has revealed of Himself. I just want to finish with uh, Hebrews 4, 14, because this is where our encouragement comes from as we study the fact that the Word became flesh. Uh, Hebrews 4, 14, we have, a high, we have a great high priest who has gone to live with God in heaven. He is, he is Jesus, the Son of God. So let us continue to express our faith in Him. Jesus, our high priest, he was tempted in the same way we are, tempted but never sinned. With Jesus as our high priest, we can feel free to come before God's throne where there is grace. There we receive mercy and kindness to help us when we need it. And by the way, that's every day, isn't it? Every day we need God's grace. When Jesus ascended into heaven, he sent the Holy Spirit who indwells every believer, and we now have his word, his written word. And so we can, at any point in time, have the Holy Spirit prompting us and encouraging us. We have this word that can teach us. And so we have this amazing ability to communicate directly with God because of the fact that Jesus Christ came and he lived and died. So our challenge, I think, from this first uh, message in, in, in the in this series, is that we are challenged to, to know God and to know His Word and to be guided by His Spirit every day. And when we do that, light overpowers the darkness. Let's pray. Lord God, thank You. Thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the power of Your Word. We thank You for all the examples that show 
us what you're like and help us to understand that you're God and that you came here full of grace and truth. Lord, help us never to get over that. Help us never to take that lightly, but to think about it in wonder and awe of what you've done for us. We praise you and we thank you. In the name of Jesus, amen.